0: Good evening. It is, it really is good to be back and to study God's Word with you guys. It's been, we have a beautiful psalm before before us this evening that has been really a joy to think through and study through this last week. Um, we have, we ended up with a free day on the preaching schedule this week. Will has been preaching through a, a series on our newly honed vision the last couple of weeks, which you'll see on the front page of your worship folder. And we'll pick that up again next week. But this evening gives us a chance to go back to the Psalms of Ascent. If you were here at the latter part of last year, then we'll preach through a series on the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 to 134 that were written in, for Israel, for Israelites to sing on their pilgrimage of worship up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was up on an elevated kind of a hill, mountain type thing. And they would even, the language of going up often meant that they were going up to Jerusalem to worship. So, we are, we are back in the Psalms of Ascent this evening. And before I read it, I do want to point out, you might have noticed, if you're a stats kind of person, that it's very short. It's actually not the shortest Psalm. Psalm 117 is only two verses. And Psalm 134 clips this one by just a few words. So this is the third shortest psalm in the Bible. But I say that um, kind of to make a And that I think this psalm is essentially about contentment. About quiet and about rest and God's provision for his people. It is a beautiful psalm. It is very simple in the words that it uses. Charles Spurgeon, the old English pastor, had this great phrase about the psalm. He said that this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but is one of the longest psalms to learn. I think that when we think about ourselves, just the idea of contentment and rest and calm, the opposite of anxiousness, are things that are appealing to us, but they are very, very difficult to actually grasp hold of and have in our lives. So in light of that, I want to read this um, for us. And then after we read it, I'll, I'll lead us in just a short word of prayer that the Lord would send his spirit and really work in our hearts this evening as we look at this at his word together. So let's read Psalm 131, a song of ascent of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Father, I just ask this evening that you would come and do a work in all of our hearts as we study your word. Um, You promise us that your word is good. And it is a mercy that you have given us, and the things you call us to in your word are good for us, but they are very difficult. So I pray, especially as we tackle this subject of contentment and rest in you, that you would, um, you would help us to not only understand, but that you would do a work and sink this down into our hearts, and that you would change us through your words. You would help us to believe and trust you, and that we would our hearts would be able to worship Um, In peace with you because of that. List all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a uh, flower bed in my front yard, and I wonder if you have one of these. It is an absolute marvel of biological diversity. I mean, there is stuff in this bed that I have never seen before, and they are all different. And the only problem is nothing in it is supposed to be there. It is completely full of weeds. And it's in one of the only spots in the yard where all of the conditions are perfect. It's got good soil. Most of the yard's shaded. It's got lots of sunlight. And so stuff just grows there. Last spring, I kind of noticed it and thought this this would be a good looking bed. So I went and pulled up a whole bunch of weeds, spent a whole Saturday and chopped a bunch of stuff down. Went about my business, went about life thinking about other things and then I remember sitting on my porch this fall and looking out at the bed and noticing it looks absolutely no different than it did when I chopped it down um, at the beginning of that year everything just on its own without me thinking about it it was in motion it moved it grew it sprouted all kinds of things everything came back I think about that in this, especially in relation to this psalm, with this flower bed, its natural state, when it's not left alone, is not one of order and not one where you would describe peace. And its natural state that it just naturally goes to is one of chaos. It is a tangled mess. And I think it's the same way with ourselves, um, with our hearts, even with... Um, our faith or the way that we devote and direct our lives. And without noticing it, that, you know, we'll go about doing the things we do that we're preoccupied with and then just without seeing it, without hearing anything, without noticing, it's like these weeds just grow up. It's this chaos of anxiety, of things to attend to and things that pull our attention and preoccupy us that um, end up creating an anxious mess inside of it. It happens all on its own, and it's very difficult to see. And I think that with just that picture and reading this psalm, we, these are beautiful words that David gives us. And it's not and we see this and we have this appealing description of peace and quiet and rest and contentment that it helps us to take notice of what's going on inside that's been hard to see. And it kind of creates a longing that would, wouldn't that be nice to say that my soul is quiet and at rest because it certainly is not that way or at least is not that way easily. So that kind of, you know, I say that to launch into this soul and to talk into this psalm to talk about commitment and about contentment and satisfaction, particularly in what God has given. And there's three things I want to notice In these three verses, I essentially want to ask of the psalm, what is the natural state of our souls? And then we're going to look at the task that it calls us to. And then we're going to look at what resources it gives us in order to carry out that task. And we're going to see just three points here. First, we're going to see the soul in motion. And second, we're going to see the labor of worship. And third, we're going to see the wonder of the Son, the Son being Jesus. The soul in motion, the labor of worship, and the wonder of the sun. Now, I'll say just a very quick word, what we talk about when I say soul. We might think of the part of us that dies, if you come from a Christian background, that goes to heaven. Or if not, that you know, departs the body into an afterlife. And that's not really how the Bible uses the word soul. It essentially when it, it means the essence of the self. It's like your whole person, the essence of your person. And here, particularly in regard to the ambitions and the focus that um, life is directed towards. So let's jump in. I'll draw your attention to verse 1, and let's look at the soul in motion. What you'll see here is David lists three things, and there's a progression here. He makes a statement of humility, which is a statement against the grain of what is natural, for the human soul to be, and it is one that is in perpetual motion. This is how it works. First, he says, "Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. That just means that my heart is not proud. But the heart ends up not just staying to itself. He goes on to say, my eyes are not raised, raised too high, which means that you know I don't look down on other people in comparison. So there's a motion of the heart as the leader moving to the eyes and how that we actually view the world. But from there, he goes on to say, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. And this, if we were to translate this, wooden, this woodenly, this word occupy, then he says, I have not walked in things too marvelous. So we see this movement from the heart to the eyes into the feet in the action, into actions. These things too great and too marvelous, they're not like the eternal mysteries of God that are hard for human beings to comprehend is essentially describing activities that are beyond human ability to actually um, bring anything good about. They're fruitless pursuits that that are beyond human's reach. So there's a movement here through verse 1 in this psalm, that the heart is the mover. For David, his posture of worship and of rest he gives it starts in the heart. And since this is a statement that is against the grain, the opposite is actually the easier thing and is just as much true. And it is the natural thing for the heart to be prideful, to value the self, ourselves above anything and, and everything else. That is essentially what pride means. Pride is not just a calculation that, you know, I'm better at this, I'm worse at this than this person, therefore... You know, I feel good about this. It, it has to do with the loves that come out of the heart. And that is a, the love of self and the priority of self that the heart tends to give birth to, um, if not worship to God, and much more easily so. But it doesn't stay there. Because when you love yourself, and when yourself is the most important thing, that that love is always on the move it 's not just a harmless thing that rests in the, rest the heart that doesn 't go anywhere else. it ends up moving to the eyes because when you love yourself, you have to maintain yourself all the time when you end up having it affects the way that we view the entire world. You have to size up you know people here next to us how are we doing are these people having more out of life than i 'm having, or you know am I threatened by something here that it begins it 's the beginning of this cycle that is always on the move i 'll give you an illustration this Easy to pick on Instagram, I think, but it just brings this out so, so, so well. Um, My wife and I were talking about it this past week. Because you're sitting there, and you're on your phone, your computer, and you're just browsing through Instagram, keeping up with friends and whatever. But then all of a sudden, you start to notice some things. Like, these people here, they're in this restaurant, and they're eating cool food. But it's not just there. They, were, they ate cool food on Wednesday as well. And they also ate cool food three days before that. And somehow, they always just end up eating cool food. It's like there's something that is in their DNA that is just cool. They just end up in the coolest places and do the coolest things. You know, they're downtown at some reclaimed factory that's now an art gallery that I didn't even know existed. Like, how do they know that I existed, you know? But, you know, and you, so it's this comparison, that there's a threat, there's something in life out there that is not filling up this love of self that starts in the heart. Or we can, you know, think the opposite direction, at least I'm not these people, parents, because they're not getting out and doing anything. But wait, they're cool too. They've got the cool diaper bags and they all have counseling degrees and they all respond to their children calmly and they affirm their emotions and do exactly what they need to do. How do I know that? Because they just said so and told me how to do it right here. See, you know, we laugh and it's silly, but this, I think we're all very familiar with this, that what starts in the heart doesn't stay there. It's on the move and it moves to the eyes and it actually affects the way we view everything around us. But it doesn't stop there as well. Because it tends to birth in that pride and the outlook of the eyes to get occupied in things that are, when we stop and think about it, are impossible and are crazy, but we can't help it. There are things like being liked by everybody. You notice that if we really love ourselves, we want to be liked by everybody. because It feels good, but this is, it is impossible To be liked by everybody. It will do nothing but destroy you if anything else. I mean, because you're liked by enough people and then a group of people will start to not like you because so many people like you, you know? Or things like control or security or comfort or stability or all of these kinds of things. David's illustrating for us here a heart in motion. The heart does not stay put. That what we put in front of it And what it latches on to is always on the move. we can focus it on God and on His provision, but if just left to its own, unattended, that love that it generates, that comes out of the heart, is always on the move underneath. It is always looking to satisfy that sense inside of getting the most for ourselves that we want or that we need. And this ends up being an absurd pursuit. I mean, we are all just little people in a big world, and we can't do these in the, in the first place. But what it does is it ends up creating more anxiety and less peace, uh, more anxiety than it does peace and rest and stillness. So that's verse 1. I think David is illustrating for us just this simple part that, you know, I wonder how much we're often aware of, that the heart doesn't just stay put where it is, but it's always on the move underneath it, oftentimes mostly and most dangerously when we don't notice. So what's the other option? You know, if it's always on the move, then what does the text tell us is another option that we have that we are called to. And that's we're going to see this, the labor of worship. Look at verse 2. David says, I have calmed and I have quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is a statement of contentment. And I'll explain this metaphor of a weaned child. This is not in the image of a child um, being fed, nursing with its mother, or and as a depiction of helplessness. That... It, the text actually stresses that this is a weaned child, that it no longer needs its mother to nurse, but it is just content sitting um, on its mother. That it no longer cries and fusses in this anxiety over getting food that it used to. So what David is saying here is just like a child is weaned from its mother, it comes to a place of contentment from what used to be absolutely necessary I can't live without this. This motion of going from there to the kind of contentment that what used to be so essential is now longer, no longer quite so essential. That that relationship there is enough. So what David is doing here is he starts in verse you know with he takes his heart that's on the move and he offers everything to the Lord in order to get this contentment. It's not just a replacement of what, of, um, excuse me, not a replacement. It is not just taking away of what used to be needed, but it is a replacement. He's taking away and he is offering everything he has to the Lord in worship, essentially. Because the opposite of a heart in motion, always craving after things, is a heart that is focused on only one thing and it is satisfied in that. Um, And that is the attitude of worship that David models for us here. He writes this psalm as a song of worship to be sung over and over and over again as a reminder of where true provision and true comfort comes from rather than what's most natural. But here's the point. This worship does not come easily. And what David is modeling for us here is that this worship is actually a work of labor. Then verse 2, this phrase, he says, I've calmed my soul. This is a word that it means to make even, and it would be used in um, agriculture to describe the leveling of land, like for tilling. So it takes the rocky places and the low places, and it tills it and makes everything level so that it actually can become fruitful at that point. That this is a work of labor. This worship... That's the focus of the heart on the true things is actually a work. It is something that takes a lot of work. It doesn't come easily. And I think we think, if you're anything like me, that contentment and peace, all it takes is just a, a realization of what's true and where provision actually comes from. And then it'll allow this release of anxiety and we can fall back on comfort, and not be disturbed again. But what David in his attitude here is modeling is actually the opposite thing. It's not just a release of anxiety, but this is a continuous over and over and over and over and over again labor of continuously assessing what is in his own heart and taking that before the Lord and presenting it to him and reminding him of what is true again and again and again and again. This is a work. I think true worship is a labor that happens over a lifetime. It is not something that just happens. It is not something that just takes uh, its own. It is not something that just goes on its own track by itself. And another illustration: Lauren, my wife, is a is really gifted at organization, particularly in our home, and she is gone through all of my closets and her closets and all the kids' toys and purrs and put stuff in different places so that they're, you know, maximum ease to clean up. Everything has a place. But we've noticed this phenomenon, and I wonder if this happens in your house as well. Stuff doesn't tend to go back like where you organized it and put it. The organization is helpful, but at the end of the day, if you want an ordered and quiet house, you have to pick up stuff and put it back. Like it's absolutely infuriating. Like they, it should you should just do it, and then they should just get up and go and work, and it should just work. But it 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 doesn't work like that way. That it takes a continuous over and over and over again taking what is there and putting it back into place. And that's what David is doing here. So I just want us to. Sit with that and think about that a little bit, maybe even this week. We're going to talk about it here, moving on in the next point, how the gospel speaks to this. And yes, this is not a work that anybody does on their own. It is a work that is done by the Holy Spirit um, out of the good news of the gospel. But it is worth sitting and thinking that the heart that's always in motion, it requires a work. It's not just something passive that's going to take care of itself all on its own, but it takes a conscious engagement to work up towards contentedness and what is true. That's the labor of worship, but that leaves us at a difficult point, and we know that, I don't wonder even thinking about that, and thinking about that David's work here in that attitude if it just makes you tired. I mean, I think about that and it is, it almost gives me anxiety to think about just lifelong work over and over and over again, working on the heart for worship. So how do you do it? It's where we're leading to here at the end. How can anybody do it? And... We all come in this room, not, it would be one thing if it was just exhaustion, but we all come in this room not just tired, but we have so many other things that are actually weighing us down and, make us, and making us anxious. We have all kinds of disappointments in life, all kinds of frustrations. You know, our bodies are breaking down, they're not working the way they used to. You know, we get injuries and have to live with that. We have things like we have to take care of our aging parents, and it is difficult. It, is, it takes everything out of us. We have career confusion. We have, you know, we're at home taking care of kids and not using our other gifts and just exhausted and getting no recognition for that. This is more like real life. I mean, relationships that break down. And so I think we need to be honest when we're asking this question, how do we do that, is that in the midst of all these things weighing us down and the task calling on us to worship in a continuous basis, on a continual basis the Lord, it is hard. I mean, oftentimes it's the last thing we want to do. I mean, what we want God to do is just to take everything away And make it easy so then our lives will be content. There's something about our hearts that just does not respond often to going before the Lord in worship when we're having a hard time. So let's keep that in mind as we we look through because this is the reality of how we are coming before this passage. So what's the hope? How do we do it? I think the answer is this. David ends the psalm in verse 3 with this little beautiful statement, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And what he's doing, he's summarizing here the whole history of Israel, of God's people that he called, and everything to where it is going. And that story has always been characterized by a God who has been up to wonderful things in the midst of a people who had no idea what he was doing and often did not like what he was doing. David is able to make this statement because he is part of the chosen people of God, who God rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, who he called and he planted in a good land and he made tremendous promises. He attached to his people, not just to bless them, but to bless the entire world through them. He led David in multiple battles, gave him great success, all the Lord's doing. But even there, if we follow the story forward in the future, it, it, God's plans didn't stop. And Israel actually rebelled, the chosen people of God, the one showered with these promises and blessings, actually spurned God to his, to his face and said, I don't want what you have. I want what I want. I want to feed my own soul. I want to do it the way I want to do it. I want to be the master of my own universe. And so God in his time disciplined them, his people by sending them to exile. But I want to read you these, verse, these verses which I love from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 14 and 16. This is a beautiful picture, I think, of the Lord passing a temporary discipline, but the purpose and the future with which he was doing this. It says this, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in the way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. I absolutely love that last line. It's like God saying that this is, this is what I do. Like, this is my style. I just, I lay waste mountains and I raise valleys and I do not forsake my people. This is the people that David was a part of. And David knew, even from his vantage point, that the Lord's promises and purposes to bless his people also came down to him. But no matter what he saw, he was a part of the special people of God that whether he saw it or not, that God was intent to do wonderful things through his people. But this is seen even more clearly as we follow the story forward. I told you this is one of the Psalms of Ascent where Israel would walk up to Jerusalem and worship. But at the right time, it was Jesus, God's own son, that he sent into the world who walked the same path. But he didn't just walk into worship He walked all the way up to Jerusalem so that he could die. And all the anxieties, all of the wounds, all the pains, all of the sin, even all the rebellion, he carried on himself. And he finished the journey all the way to to the top, obedience to his father's will. And he died. And he did that so that whatever is in us and whatever stands in our way, whatever weighs on us, and the ways that our hearts respond, even poorly under the stress for his children, all of that was taken to the grave and it was buried. It's dead. And Jesus rose again, having left all of that behind in the grave, to the pride and to the glory and trumpet sounds of his father. That he, the father was delighted in the Son, who accomplished His will so perfectly to put Him above the entire universe, that He would be the end. That everything would go through and focus on Him. The point is this. The Son, who accomplished the wonderful, unexpected work of the Father, is the Son, who the Father cannot wait And it is absolute delight to give him nothing but the absolute best. He does not hold anything back. That all of the blessings, everything that the Father has in him, and the whole host of heaven, was his delight to bestow on his son that made him proud. And he did that so that the people of God... The people that he chose and that he called to himself would not come before God the way that they are, but that they would come before God in the same way that Jesus came before God. They have the same rights to come before the throne as God's special and prized children and that God delights to give them nothing but the best. It is a wonderful and wondrous work that God and the Son and the Spirit did on the cross in claiming people for themselves. And God, this gives us a focus for everything else that we have and we experience through life. That as we see what Jesus did, it is the down payment and it is the final statement that God, even in unexpected ways, will stop at nothing to do wonderful things because everything ends with Jesus. And those of us who belong to Jesus are privy to that same promise. And so where does that leave us? I think it brings us to the true antidote to discontentment and anxiety. It is not a suppression of discontentment and a willful forced attitude of rest and peace and commitment. I think the antidote, the antidote to discontentment and anxiety is having the doors of heaven swung open to you so that you, just like Jesus, can come before the throne of heaven and say, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. And there is nothing that he has that he holds back from those that he delights in that much. I think it is only in that good news of Jesus that we can say this phrase, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I pray that that would be the case for us as we go from here. Let's pray. Dear Father, you... Your word is always good and it always challenges us. But again, we just come before you and for the sake of all of us in here and for our hearts, that you would help us to remember the good news. That all the things we face every day, all the insignificance, all the anxiety, all the discontentment, Father, fix our eyes on Jesus and what you have done for us, that we might have hope in what he has done and the blessings that you joyously extended to him, and that we might just a little bit be able to let go of the disbelief that holds us back, that we might again, our hearts just a little bit be opened up, that we might enjoy the blessings that you pour out on your children. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.